and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Benjamin Wittes interviews Edward Lucas on his new book, Cyberphobia, Identity, Trust, Security, and the Internet. It was recorded on December 2nd, 2015. So this is uh, the third of what is still a, a, a new series for us uh, of sort of monthly book soirees with um, uh, authors of important new national security books. And I was uh, delighted to uh, 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 get Ed on his uh, uh, jaunt through Washington uh, on the release of, of Cyberphobia in the United States. It's been out for a few months in Britain, yeah? September. September. Um, and um, let's just dive into it. Um, Let's talk about the title. Um, you know, we, we hear cybersecurity, we hear cyber espionage, we hear uh, cyber intrusion, cyber theft. When I saw the title of this book was the first time I'd ever heard the term cyberphobia, which I assume is a coinage of yours. Um, why, is, why is that a framework in which, in which we should think about vulnerabilities in this area? Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Thanks to Hoover, to Brookings Lawfare, and also to the LSE Society. It's great to see so many um, alumni from my old school, um, where I don't recall anyone ever thinking about the internet or computers at all. Um, that was 1980 to 83, if you're wondering. Um, I thought up the title because the, the first, when, when I started this, my publisher said, would you like to write a book about um, this issue? And so I started reading all the books, and the first thing I noticed was they weren't really written in English, and that no normal person could understand them. Now, I'm lucky, I actually have a, a kind of long background in dealing with electronics and communications, and I've done, um, I was one of the first journalists to have a laptop back in 1988, and I've been following this uh, um, even before then. I played around with the computers when I was, when I, when I was a kid. Um, so I could sort of get up to functional fluency in this language. Um, but when I tried to explain to my friends and family what, I, what my book was going to be about, we reached the MEGO stage, my eyes glaze over, really quickly. And so it seemed to me that the first thing that would make the book distinctive would be to write it with absolutely no jargon at all. And one of the words I decided I deeply disliked was the word cyber. Um, because, and in fact, cyber appears in the book only twice, once in the title, um, because the publisher insisted on it, and once in the glossary, where I say something on the lines of cyber is a word more often used to confuse than to illuminate. Because you can put cyber in front of almost anything. And, and I think that it disguises um, the fact that this is actually not fundamentally a technical problem. It's a problem about human beings. It's about one lot of human beings attacking another lot of human beings and using to a greater or lesser extent um, computers and networks to do so. And so you'll see the phrase, the rather annoying phrase, computers and networks, appears quite often in the book. Um, that's where you might have seen the word cyber, but I think people can understand computers and networks better. So I stripped out the jargon and then got into the different ways in which our security is at risk, whether it's from 
high-end threats like hostile foreign governments and intelligence services, through hooligans and pranksters, through to sophisticated cyber criminals and very, very unsophisticated ones who are just taking advantage of all the different problems that, um, that our computers and networks create. Okay, so from your point of view, one of the things that makes this book distinct is that, in, as, at least in my reading of the literature, uh, the literature that's focused on the individual uh, and the threats to individuals tend to be focused very heavily on issues of privacy. Your privacy is under threat. Your, the government is spying on you. This Facebook is spying on you. And the literature that is uh, formulated as a cybersecurity literature tends to be much more about institutional threats, um, threats to institutions and threats by institutions. What's different about this book, in, in my estimation, is that you focus considerably on the threat to the individual, but you focus on it as a security threat rather than as a, as chiefly as a privacy threat. Um, and I'm interested in your sense of the relationship between the threat to the individual and the threat to institutions that that individual may be associated with and countries to which that person may be citizens of. One of the things that really struck me um, about this is the way in which an individual's in ignorance or carelessness can lead to something which doesn't harm them but harms the people that they are associated with. And that's something that we, it seems quite difficult until you start thinking about it in terms of either public health or road safety. A badly driven car can cause accidents which the a dr driver may never know about. You know, screeching tires and bent, bending fenders and broken glass as they go over the intersection, they never realise what they've done. Um, public health, we have um, individuals who can have a disease like typhoid, which you are carrying, you're endangering other people, um, you never know about this, and um, other people are getting sick and maybe dying. And so I, th I thought this, this, I, this kind of strict distinction between the individual who worries about his welfare and institutions who should worry about their welfare is quite wrong. Institutions, institutions tend not to have um, their own... Um, computers and networks, there's always going to be an individual involved, and that individual can be attacked by social engineering, you can have, they may have a bring your own device, which they may have a USB stick they plug onto the network, and they can endanger the institution, they can endanger their family and loved ones, they can endanger themselves. And the vulnerabilities that come up um, affect everybody. So the OPM hack, which is a high-end um, attack by a foreign government, we presume um, China, although that's not been officially confirmed, which does terrible damage to the um, the heart of sort of American statecraft and the ability to keep the identities secret of people who work for the American government. That was done using the same sort of tool that you might have used in cybercrime. It wasn't a very clever Stuxnet style attack. It was a simple infected email, somebody clicked on something, they didn't have an encrypted database, they didn't have two-factor authentication, and they just walked into the shop and stole everything that was there. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to get away from this rather binary divide between individuals and institutions and think more about the, the kind of family of vulnerabilities and the way in which all these different threat actors, to use a bit of jargon, can exploit them, and then all the different ways in which our society can be affected, and then the ways in which we can defend ourselves. And defending an individual's privacy may also turn out to be the same way that we defend our national security. 
Okay, so we have a whole constellation of problems that people group under the rubric of cybersecurity or computer and network security. How do you identify the core of the problem that you were trying to address in this book? Is, you know, is it a problem, it is clearly not in your account, a problem fundamentally of, of what governments will do in wartime, cyber war. It's not fundamentally a problem of taking down the power grid, sort of cyber malfeasance of, of, of the catastrophic Pearl Harbor nature. From your point of view, what's the molten core of the problem? Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you phrased it like that because I think it, we would never try and run our civil aviation, our international civil aviation system on the basis we don't want another Pearl Harbor. Of course we don't want another Pearl Harbor, but this is the wrong way of... If you look at this, this issue through the very narrow issue of cyber warfare, you will do things that are either stupid or wrong or counterproductive or, or, or ineffective. So or, wait, give them. us an ex before you go on, give us an example of that. Well, what, 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 why is it distortive to think of it, you know, if you're in the Pentagon, you got to think about all these networked weapons systems, communication systems that you're relying on and your troops are relying on. Why should we not think of the security of those systems as integral to the core of the problem? Well, because I don't think they're integral. I think they are. These these are important things to think about. You know, do we have hardened battlefield communications? Is our power grid vulnerable? The SCADA systems on our power grid could they be hacked? Um, could you know? Are, are we building in enough resilience? Where's the cost of these precautions going to land? Is it on the consumer, the shareholder, or the taxpayer? These are all good questions, but they're not central. They are these. The, the, the fact we have this problem is a symptom of something else, and that something else is that the internet was not designed to be the central nervous system of modern life. The internet was designed, it grew up, it wasn't really even designed, it grew up as a way for academics to share information and as a system that was so resilient because of its distributed nature that it could survive a nuclear attack. And those were two very good things. Cast your mind back 30 years, commerce on the internet was actually against the rules. The rules weren't really enforced, but you know, universities would say, you're not to use this academic network for your personal or commercial gain. And that, because that was seen as, as not right. We st it was rather similar with Citizens Band Radio at the time, if you remember. You weren't supposed to do business over that, that was back when it was Amazon.edu. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and, and at every stage in the, direct, in the development of the Internet, we have prized innovation, flexibility, backwards compatibility, and low cost over security. And those have been, at every stage, probably reasonable reasonable decisions to make. But the result is we have a system which is fundamentally insecure. The hardware is insecure, the software is insecure. Just think, if your car crashed as often as your computer did, would you accept that as tolerable? No, we've, we've got used to a very high level of, 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 of mistakes and insecurity. The networks are not designed um, securely. And we don't, we have two, therefore, fundamental problems as a result of this. The first is identity. We don't have a way of proving who we are, and we don't have ways of proving who other people are. And this really matters because the trustful interaction between people and institutions who don't know each other is the absolute basis of civilization. And if you don't have that, you get back to a situation where you only do business with your family and friends, 
and that would yeah, that's a catastrophically bad way of doing it. On the internet, it's really hard. I'm really glad we have an Estonian in the room, and I'm really sorry that she didn't bring her ID card, because Caroline and I are the only two people in this room who really simply can communicate in a way that she knows that it's Edward Lucas, I know that it's her, very high level of cryptographic assurance, very convenient to do, and I can send her a document that only she can read. She can send me a document that only I can read, that we know that's come from each other. I can give a digital signature, which is legally binding. And we can, we can interact over the internet as securely as if we were sitting in front of each other as we are now. So that's one problem, identity. And we've really got into trouble on this. We have enormous um, priority to anonymity. Anonymity is great in many ways. But dealing with people where you don't know um, who the other person is makes life really complicated. To illustrate this in the book, and which I know you're all going to buy and read, as a little test, I set up a Gmail account called russian.embassy.london at gmail.com. Really easy to do. And I sent, I, I copied and pasted the logos from the Russian embassy, and this is a very limited experiment. I don't think I'm getting to get in trouble for it. And I sent 10 emails to carefully selected colleagues, institutions, and a couple of embassies, including NATO countries. Um, and I... What I did was I complained about Edward Lucas. I, I signed it, Pavlov, Russian Embassy, Councillor. They said, it's come to our notice that you're dealing with Edward Lucas. He's a person of interest to the security organs of the Russian Federation. Please desist from this, because otherwise the consequences may be detrimental. Every single one of them believed it. Nobody thought, why would the Russian Embassy be using a Gmail account? Why would, the Russian, why would this logo at the bottom, including the phone numbers, not really be phone numbers? You click on this link and nothing happens, because it's a JPEG. Nobody noticed. So our identity is completely up the creek. The other problem we have is navigation. So identity is one. The other is navigation. You don't really know where you are on the internet. This system we have of security certificates, the little padlock, HTTPS, it's all basically broken. Security certificates are fundamentally not trustworthy. There are ways of making them more trustworthy, but we have put enormous weight on the idea that, that if you are communicating with a site that has a valid security certificate and that little padlock is there, then you're okay. Well, actually, you're not. There are so many ways that that can be attacked. It can be attacked with endpoint vulnerabilities, the man-in-the-middle attacks, the security certificates can be, um, can be, can be, can, can be um, stolen or even faked or just issued by a corrupt or incompetent security authority. So you put those things, two things together of identity and navigation and you have a really serious problem. And that doesn't matter whether you're NSA or OPM or whether you're just John Doe trying to keep his um, personal household finances safe. Okay, so I, I actually buy all that. But, wow. let, but, let's, but let's assume for, the minute, for a minute that I didn't. Um, and if I were uh, highly skeptical of this thesis, uh, my first reaction would be, you have seen an incredible pace of innovation. You've seen service delivery and economic growth uh, driven by this set of technological developments that is unprecedented in human history. You've seen goods delivered, great goods delivered uh, to human benefit all over the world in a fashion that nobody could have imagined. And what you're describing is a small tax on it. Um, and, and it's uh, one that, why should I not assume that the market on its own will correct for as the tax becomes too high for the community to pay? And we will develop technologies designed to answer it. Um, why, why are you assuming 
that the level of engineered stupidity and human stupidity in the use of the engineering is a constant rather than uh, a reflection of um, a reflection of a snapshot in time that will be as responsive to the market as uh, the market has undervalued security to this day. To, up till now, it will start valuing it more and will get better security goods as a result. I think, I mean, first of all, I agree there's been huge benefits. And winding the clock back, I'm not sure that there's that much. I would do differently because the creativity and wealth creation that the internet has brought is, is a huge public good, and I agree with that. Um, I don't think it's a small tax. Um, the cost of cybercrime made up with what we spend on cybersecurity, because we have to, all the stuff that's stolen, whether it's of monetary value or non-monetary value, all the human misery that results, and the fact that so much money is flowing into the criminal economy is really serious. The worst people in the world are making, you know, it may only be a hundred billion, it may be the high end of several hundred billion. This is huge amounts of money is flowing into the criminal economy and it doesn't stay there. It then gets recycled, it develops the criminal economy. And one of the things that worries me is that the speed of development in the criminal economy is far faster than the speed um, of development in what you might call the protection economy. When I first started writing this book, the idea that you could buy malware on the internet and it would come with any kind of customer service and guarantee was pretty cutting edge. And yeah, there were examples, but most of it, it was kind of, yeah, you buy it and yeah, you hope it works. We know if you go into the dark web now, you can see people selling um, malware with um, profit sharing agreements. You get it free, but you, we split the proceeds with three levels of customer, customer support. You can get the kind of, how do I install this, which is level one, the kind of, how do I direct it to this particular target, which is level two, and the, there's something funny with this line of code, do you mind if I tweak it and will it break if I do, which is level three. And that's all there. That is more sophisticated on the dark side than we have on the white side. So yeah, because that's better than Apple does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could go to the genius bars and they'll say, have you, well, maybe you need to buy a new iPhone. That's not quite so, that's not quite so good. So, so I, think, I think there's a... a I, I don't share your complacency um, in the devil's advocate argument you were making. I think the bad guys are getting better at what they do faster than we do. And we are not getting fast, uh, fast enough because we are not hurting enough or we don't feel we're hurting enough. And we are not scared enough. And on the whole, things change when people are either hurting or scared of hurting. Okay, so I, I want to push you on that. You just said a sentence with a very important or, which is that we are not hurting enough or we don't feel that we're hurting enough. Those are actually very different statements. And I'm interested in which one you think is the reality. Because if the answer is we're, not, we're actually not hurting enough to do something about, that's another way of saying we're paying an acceptable tax. If, on the other hand, is the tax is invisible, it's much higher than we think it is, uh, and we're not experiencing, we don't know the pain that we're actually experiencing or the cost that we're actually experiencing, that's a very different claim. So I'm interested in which you think is accurate and, and why. Well, I think on some things we are really hurting, and on other things we, only, we don't yet realize. So the things where we're really hurting is on the state-sponsored theft of, of um, intellectual property, and that's something which is a really big deal. Corporate America is really fed up with this. You go to, and they off their 
ambiguous about how much they'll say it in public, but there are big companies you can go to and they'll say, you know what, the Chinese stole our stuff and copied it, and we know that they copied it because they didn't just copy the bits that worked, they copied the bits that didn't work because they didn't realise that we were still trying to fix that. And we see in this Chinese product the stuff that we were trying to fix because they copied it. And they're now making money and selling it much, much more cheaply. So that would be an example where we're hurting. Um, where we, I think that the OPM hack, for example, is an example where government has lost something that you can never get back again, which is the immutable personal data um, of your really important employees. And that is going to, to muck things up for um, American intelligence operations for years to come, because people who um, you might want to post abroad under some, in some you know, even non-official, either non-official cover or even official cover or whatever, um, you can't do that because the Chinese have got their fingerprints and you can never give those people another fingerprint. Also with immutable personal data, you never get another mother's maiden name, you can never get another date of birth. All this stuff, once it's gone and been used carelessly, that's like a tax that's going to go in the future for years. I also think that with the, we are spraying out stuff that we can't fix in the form of the Internet of Things. So if you are going to, and we've seen this with routers already, or routers, um, we all have these little boxes. I wonder how many people in this room would know if I asked you now, can you honestly say you can get into your home router um, and check whether it's um, running up-to-date software? Do you know how to change the password? Is it publicly visible? How would you know if someone was sitting outside your house with you know, doing some kind of attack on the data? Are, are you using a VPN? People do not care one little bit about this stuff. It's as boring as the electricity supply. And we are sending these devices out in the millions and tens of millions, and we're doing it now with smart meters and the whole Internet of Things. And I just did a radio program which went out on the BBC yesterday, and I interviewed a hacker who has worked out, and we didn't actually put this in the program, but he has worked out how to, with an Internet-enabled fridge, he can make it catch fire. Because you switch it, he worked out, you can switch it into maintenance mode and out again and get backwards and forwards in a way it was never designed to do. The designers of this fridge never thought that anyone would be crazy enough to want to do this. And if you do this often enough, it heats up and he says, and he didn't demonstrate it to me because I couldn't afford to buy him one of these expensive fridges to show it. He says you can make it catch fire. So people all over the world are buying these, these devices, IoT devices, with internet built in, with no idea who's, who is responsible for updating the software. That, that is a vast future tax on us for decades to come, of the kind we've already seen with all the rubbish software that people have bought. People are still running Windows ME. We had a big hack in Britain of our TalkTalk, which is like one of our biggest and most useless telecom companies. Um, I didn't say that. Please delete that. I don't want them to see me. And the chief executive didn't know that the customer data was on an unencrypted database, so all those people's detail um, was at risk, and a lot of it got stolen. She was then interviewed, and she was sitting at her desk, and sharp-eyed people said, that's funny, the chief executive of this quite important company is a desk with, and her, you can see from her computer, that's a Windows ME desktop. It's insane. Well, it's a good thing that you didn't identify the maker of the refrigerator because, because they would turn around and now make it a, market it as a refrigerator oven. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, um, Space heater. <laughs> so in this book, one of the most interesting components of the book, which you've, you've already alluded to, is that you actually have held out a single country as doing this right. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about Estonia. We've got some Estonians here in, in, in the audience. Um, I, I was aware of the Estonian ID program 
uh, digital ID program. Let's start, uh, but, I, but you made me think about it in a way that I have not thought about it before. So let's start by describing the problem of identity and describing how, how other countries and companies have thought about addressing that problem and conversely how Estonia has sought to address that program, right. that problem. So here's how not to do identity. Well, so start by describing okay. what the problem is. Okay, the, the problem is you run a service and you want to know whether the people who are using that service are entitled to do it. That can be a one-on-one -on -one service, it can be, or it can be a, more, you know, a website that people log into, they want to pay their taxes. And so you need a way of identifying people. And the classic way you do it is a username and password, often accompanied by immutable personal data. And this is bad for many reasons, because there's then a, a password file which can be hacked. It may not be properly hashed and sorted. Um, the um, password has to be, supposedly has to be changed regularly so people don't remember to change it. And it's a very cumbersome way of doing it. You can get around that a little bit by having two-factor authentication. So you get a code that's on your phone or they text you something and you put that in. You can have dongles that you carry around with you. But all this is, 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 is pretty cumbersome and, it, and you have to do it again for each different service you use. So you have to remember, this is the one I use for my bank, this is the one I use for my credit card, this is the one for utility provider, this is the one I use at work. So we're having to remember that the cognitive overload of this is just impossible. So people then reuse their password, which is really dangerous, because then if one of those gets hacked, the same password can be used to attack any other site, or they um, use passwords that just end with 01, 02, 03, 04, which are then vulnerable to, to, to brute force attacks and so on. So, the, so the, the whole idea of using these logins and passwords is basically stupid. And what the Estonians have done is um, two really important things. One is, and there's no single point of vulnerability anywhere in Estonia. Everything, there's not a single national database for anything. They have a thing called the X-Road, which is like a federation of databases that can talk to each other. They don't actually exchange the actual data. They just say, is this correct? Is this okay? And so it's a well, challenge response system rather than um, actually putting all the data in one big lump that the Chinese can steal. And then secondly, they have a single way of, and Caroline, you've got to correct me here if I'm getting this, this wrong, because like, you're a real expert. Um, um, but you then have this ID card, which has, is based on a strong biometric check. It's, you get it at birth, mostly, if you're Estonian, if you're a foreigner like me. They do a, a, a biometric check and all your real-world stuff. And then all that data is encrypted and stored on the card. It's not on a database um, in any form that anyone can read. And then you, all you have to remember is your two PIN numbers, one to say, I'm Edward Lucas, and the other, which is one digit longer to make it easy to remember, is, yes, I agree to this. And you can basically live your entire life in Estonia without having to remember anything else. You have those two PIN numbers and your card. And you do that whether you're paying your taxes, you, if you're e-banking, you can actually store thing, useful things like your public transport ticket on the card. So it's one card, that's all you need. And it makes life incredibly simple. And it's, um, you use it for voting, for example. And you do your e-voting just by logging in, typing your card. That, yes, it's me. Who do you want to vote for? Donald Trump. That's fine. Five digits. Um, <laughs> And uh, it would be Trump in, Trump in Estonia. Um, but so, so, it, so it simplifies everything. You don't have to remember all this stuff. And there's, it's, it's far, far um, harder for... Um, and I, I, I'm not saying it's perfect. There's, I'm very worried always about endpoint vulnerabilities, particularly from very high-end attackers. And if you have a targeted attack from a high-end 
um, high-end advanced persistent threat. I, they will be able to get into your phone. I'm sure they can get into phones in Estonia. They can get into your keyboard and see what you type. They can get into your screen and see what's on your screen. There's still, so this is not a panacea, but at least it cuts out a huge amount of the clutter. And do we know, so this is something you don't go into in your book. You, you talk about how uh, popular this system is among Estonians. But one thing you don't talk about is whether the rates of identity theft and cybercrime uh, directed at Estonian nationals is lower than it is uh, among others. And do we have any data on that? Well, I mean, anecdotally, talking to Estonians, they say, yes, we've heard of this strange thing. It seems to happen to foreigners who don't have ID cards. But, you know, this, the, classic, the classic sort of um, attack of, you know, phoning someone up and saying, I'm from Microsoft, your computer seems to be running slowly. Um, would you mind giving me all your personal data and I'll give you a refund? It doesn't seem it doesn't it doesn't doesn't it do, doesn't seem to happen so much. But I mean, yeah, we, we we have an Estonian in the room, so um, you maybe over, over drinks we can all descend on Caroline and ask her ask her questions. It's also Estonia is quite a small country, and, and it's probably not worth people developing sophisticated attacks. But the one thing I want to say on this ID card is foreigners can get it too. You pay fifty dollars at any Estonian embassy or consulate. You do the biometric check, and you've got that. You can use it. If you want it, you can use it. You don't have to. It's completely opt-in. But they've got, I think they're, up, they're going to be up to 10,000 by the end of the year um, on these. They, I, was, I was number one, so I was very pleased. But it's, been, it's taken off very fast. And you're getting companies, and I, we can't mention the company because it's still, yeah, it has not signed sealed yet. There is a company which is saying, we want to issue this card to all our employees. Because we would rather rely on this very strong cryptography, proven system, um, that is much better than us trying to issue a mixture of dongles and passwords and you know, things on your mobile and so on. So, so why, you know, I would venture to guess, let's show of hands, for how many of you is this the first time you've heard of this system? Yeah, so it's two-thirds, yeah. Why has this not caught on elsewhere? Well, it ha in fact, it has. And what's really interesting about this, and first of all, the Estonians are very clear, this is in beta. They say, this probably won't work. When it doesn't work, tell us why so we can fix it. So the, it's very unlike government, which normally does things when they're absolutely sure it's going to work. And this, the, the, I was the first cardholder, and I said, right, how do I make this work on my Mac? And they said, oh, my goodness, you haven't installed Yosemite, have you? And I said, I'm afraid I just did. And I had the three top geeks in Estonia under the hood on my poor little Mac McGair <laughs> <laughs> trying to work out how to make their showcase example actually work. So, that, so I mean, it, the, the first answer, it, this is still not in alpha. But the, what was really interesting, the Singaporeans were often, before they even launched it, the Singaporeans had turned up in Estonia and said, tell us everything about this, because we really like this idea. We also have a, a I mean, it's different but similar, digital ID system in Singapore. We know that Singapore is regarded all over East Asia as one of the best-run countries, if not the best-run. Um, people will trust the Singaporean government where they won't necessarily trust the Taiwanese or Hong Kong or whatever. And so we want, to issue, we want to do what Estonia is doing in Europe, and we want to do it for the whole of East Asia. We think we can do many millions of these things. Now, I don't know how far they've got with that, and they, you know, there may be other reasons why they don't. But I, I can see, just as we have competing credit cards, and credit cards basically revolutionized our travel around the world because you didn't need to take traveler's checks and cash. So we now have already the Estonian Express card, which is doing that for our travels on the internet. And we may well get the Singaporean MasterCard and who knows what, some other country may do, do its own one. And you'll have a competition. 
um, and we will see what the you know, convenience, what the level of cryptography is, and um, how many applications work. And that will be just you know uh, the the best one will will, will 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 come out on top. So I want to challenge you on one aspect of this. Um, you have a chapter of the book that is devoted uh, to the dangers of monoculture. Uh, the basic argument of which is, you know, if the same system is installed on a gazillion machines and you find a flaw in the system, you compromise all of those machines. There are 1.3 million Estonians. All of them are carrying a card that is functionally uh, the same technology. Uh, if you scale that to the size of a country that's, say, bigger than a mid-sized American city, um, you, why would you not have a very dangerous monoculture? Well, I think this, I mean, it would be a nice problem to have that so many people are using this car, which at the moment only 8,000 people are using, that, that, that it became a monoculture. I suspect we're going to see more competition among this. Um, and what, one point on the Estonian thing, I mean, the cryptography is, is, is extremely resistant to brute force attack. It's, I think, 2048-bit. Uh, Encryption, so that's you know is 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 a, is a good basis for starting. As I say, there are endpoint vulnerabilities, but that is always the, you know, the question of how much how high value is the target that you're going for, and then within the databases, there's no single database, so that's uh, you know the, and it's the whole system's built that there isn't a single point of vulnerability. But I think I think um, there are other mon monocultures I worry about much much more. Than that, and I think once we see these things taking off, there'll be there'll be quite a lot of different ones. And actually, you know, you could argue with Visa and Mastercard. This is, I mean, it's it's a brand, but it's not a monoculture. You have lots of different providers of this under the Visa thing, and you couldn't. There's not a central Visa computer that you could you could hack. So the ultimate. I was thinking about as I was reading your book. I was I was um, at a cafe with my son. And I look up, and I recognize Gabriel. And I say, I don't have to challenge him with a password or you know, a dongle. Or I, I, I recognize his face. I know the sound of his voice. There is a human quality to that security, which we just have a word for in English. It's recognize. And you have a, a number of sort of tantalizing allusions in the book to needing to move beyond passwords. And I was over at Intel yesterday, and they were talking about moving beyond passwords. And it seems to me when you move beyond passwords, what you're, what you're moving toward is some kind of recognition. That is, you don't need the challenge because there's some behavioral, visual, audio, uh, biometric set of qualities of the, of the entity you're dealing with that allow you simply to know that's Todd Lindbergh, that's Emily Messner. I don't need to have them identify themselves. I can look at them and know who they are. What, what is the, um, and there's a huge security benefit in that human quality that computers don't have. What is is that when you say move beyond passwords, is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about something sort of more sort of a, a different technological Estonia-like scheme? I think what's really interesting about you meeting your friend is it's not only you can recognize your, his, your friend, you can also recognize how he's behaving. 
Right. And if he comes up to you with his pupils, very, very small, talking very fast and saying he needs to borrow $100, you may think that this is not the, the, the guy you know and love and you may want to take him somewhere else and not give him the money. And we have a... All our senses are engaged when we meet and engage um, with other people. And on the internet, you basically have a, the, your eyes working on a 2D screen and whatever comes out of the speaker. So two of your senses are engaged, and neither of those very well, both through, um, you know, filtered through, through, through ele ele electronics, which may or may not distort what you're seeing. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a problem which you can't solely deal with um, with technical means. You can say, I'm dealing with this other person on the basis of very strong, strong cryptography, and that's fine. You can, and I think you really can do a digital signature which is as trustworthy as a wet signature on a bit of paper. In fact, it's more, more trustworthy um, because the wet signature can be copied in a way the digital signature can't. But I think we also have to be, um, you know, perhaps dial down our expectations a bit and say there are some things which we really do want face-to-face -face contact. And I would say having root the power to administer a really important network should not be issued on the basis of any electronic interaction because there's always a danger it's a fake. You know, if you're going to give me access to the Lawfare blog with the right to post anything that I want on it and maybe the access to the entire Brookings computer and all the details of everybody who works at Brookings and all their personal data and everything else, that should involve a face-to-face -face meeting, even if it's really inconvenient because at that point the trade-off between security and and, and conveniences in the favour of security. And I think we've gone far too far down the idea that if it can be put online, it should be put online. There are some things you don't need to put online. I would actually argue that OPM is a good example. You did not need to put all that data on an electronic database. Watch the old John le Carre movies. There's one which I can't remember, probably my friend Christian does, where they have to go into, um, I think it's the new Tinker Tailor, and they have to go into the MI6 building and get a file. And this is a really big problem because you're not allowed to copy files, you're certainly not allowed to take them, they have to work out a way of getting in, there's some ruse for getting in, and then they have to work out, and you're not allowed to take any physical object in which a file could be concealed, and they work out a way of doing that. And that's just to steal one file. These days, what you need to steal is the login, the password, and some other security device, and you can get in, and you can put it all on a thumb drive, and swallow the thumb drive and take it out with you. And that can really happen. So we, we've... We, I think there's a huge advantage. It's no, I mean, intelligence agencies are now buying manual typewriters and carbon paper because there are some things that you just don't want to have anywhere near electrons. You just want atoms. And you know, that, that fundamentally is, is, a, is a... And I think that's sensible. Okay, so short of the return to the manual typewriter, um, which I am marginally old enough to remember using and have, I, let's say my nostalgia for is altogether under control. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about solutions. Um, you're describing a very pervasive set of cu cultural and technological problems. Um, the last chapter of the book is called Turning the Tables. And much of it is about the obstacles to turning the tables, not actually getting it done. If you could do three things, you know, three policy, technological, or cultural interventions that are maximum bang for the buck, what are they? I think we should, first of all, 
although I'm very gloomy, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, I think as a society we have experience in dealing with this. In public health, we've got used to the idea of invisible threats and things that don't harm me but can harm you. Road safety, I think, is an even better example. When I grew up in Britain, we were killing 6,500 people on the roads every year and maiming tens of thousands with life-changing, life-ruining injuries. And we've got that down now to, I think, it's about 1,500 deaths, still far too many. And yet the number of cars on the road has increased hugely, and it's not just that we have traffic jams and nobody's driving at any speed. Um, we, 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 we approached it, from, we accepted there was no magic bullet, and we attacked it from every direction. So, for example, and, and I'm, not, not, I'm not going to help you and give you the three sort of things that will solve it. Give me five. But, know. okay, I mean, first of all, insurance. Let's start with insurance. Insurance companies have got to take this a lot more seriously because they are insuring factories and homes and workplaces where there's going to be IoT, Internet of Things devices, which we know hackers can attack and make them catch fire. So I think insurance companies have got to start saying, where, just like they do with an office building, is this, do you have all your fire exits? Do you have sprinklers? Um, is everything, you know, here are some standards, meet them, otherwise you don't get insurance, or maybe your insurance is going to be a lot more expensive. And that is a, that's something that um, companies can understand. I think also on the corporate side, perhaps this would be one of my sort of simple, easy things, take the chief information security officer function, take it out of the IT department and put it in the general counsel's office. This is not a kind of how much money do we have to spend and can we afford it question. This is a how do I keep the chief executive from going to jail sort of question. And so, you know, this terrible word compliance um, is something that co companies are, you know, they, they get this. They have procedures, they do training, they do warning. And in the general counsel's office, that's where um, the buck stops on that. And he kind of has the authority to say to the chief executive, I'm really sorry, um, this is going to cost us money, but we have to do it. Um, I think you can change the legal framework, particularly in countries that don't at the moment have serious criminal penalties for data breach. I think you should think that if you have lost the immutable personal data of your customers, your employees, um, your shareholders, or your um, suppliers, um, you are in really serious trouble. This is like having Legionnaire's disease in your building. And you need to take it, you, you take a lot of precautions to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, you need to spend money, do things that may seem inconvenient. If it does happen, you have to fess up really quickly and help make it, make it right. And I think that you know, some countries have very strong data protection, others don't. And I think we can, we can look, and I'd like to see that as part of TTIP, but you know, harmonizing the data protection standards for individuals. Um, what else? Credit rating agencies. You can have a credit event based, and this is, I was talking to Moody's about this just the other day, perhaps delete that. So I was talking to a ratings agency just the other day, because I'm not sure they've, but they are really interested in what would happen if a big company had a bad, uh, a bad breach and its credit rating went down? Should they be rating companies on the basis of, of, of how good their security is? Um, government should be, we should be, individuals should be much thrifty about giving away their personal data and boycotting people who demand it. I interviewed a guy for my radio program who had um, been, wanted to, he was organising a session in London, a workshop on the Estonian ID card. And he needed a PA system, what we're using now, loudspeakers and microphones. And they wanted a copy of his passport, date of birth, all his personal data, before they would lend him, rent him a PA system that maybe cost £10,000. And he said, the information I've just given you is sufficient for you to open a bank account in my name. And they said, very sorry, that's the procedure. You know, if I'd been him, I'd have said, I'm going to find another company to rent this thing from. 
if necessary, I'll make one myself or buy it on Amazon or something. But you know, we, we, we as individuals have got to be much less promiscuous about how we do it. So it boils down in the end to a mixture of a legal framework which applies civil and criminal penalties to carelessness, to a higher cost of doing business um, for um, people who do stupid and careless things, public education, then finally, and this is where I really do have a big bang question, we've got to improve our cross-border criminal justice cooperation to go in and disrupt the criminal economy. If you had a business in this country that was trading stolen cars in large numbers, the FBI would be onto it like a flash. And in most criminal, criminal justice jurisdictions, dealing in stolen goods is a much bigger crime than stealing the goods in the first place, because that's how you disrupt criminality. And we are really bad at dealing with the way in which cybercrime is cashed out. In, you have a regulated banking system in this country. We have one in Britain. When the money is stolen from your account because you did something stupid on the internet, it doesn't disappear into thin air. It doesn't turn into cash and go into the criminal's pocket. It doesn't become Bitcoin. They can transfer it to another bank account. Now, they had to open that bank account. Someone went into a bank with a document. There'll be CCTV footage. Then it goes from that bank account to another bank account. Then it'll be transferred abroad. At every point there, there is a vulnerability. We can be doing sting operations. We can be saying to the banks who've opened these accounts, you're opening lots of accounts that are opened by criminals. How would your chief executive like to go to jail? And how would you like to lose your banking license? If not, cooperate. And we need to be much, much more active in going upstream into the criminal economy and doing everything from, from sting operations to cross-border operations, prosecutions, and so on, and start disrupting it. On that cheerful note, we will bring this to a close. And thank you all for coming and join me in thanking For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.